Inside every believer beats the heart of a sojourner, one who is looking and longing for his true home. That heart's cry is answered in the period of time Pastor Phil will lead us through today as he shares from Revelation chapter 21. Let's join him now for our study. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. John said, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. What's the most important thing about this new city? Is it the streets of gold? Is it the jewels that make up the foundation? We'll talk more about this next time. What is the most important thing about this city? It's beauty or the fact that God dwells there. You know, I was at a, uh, a dinner for a ministry a couple years ago, and the speaker, who's a pastor, said something that I've never forgotten. He said to his church one day, he said, do you folks really, really love Jesus? I mean, do you really love him? He said, what if heaven had all the people you loved and you had eternity to just rejoice and fellowship, but Jesus was not there? Would that really bother you? Well, apparently, that question really pierced a few hearts. As some people realized, and they broke down and wept openly, to realize, you know, I'm not sure that I would be that sad if I could have eternity with all my friends and family members. And, and not that I wouldn't want Jesus there, but I'm just not sure that, you know what I'm saying? In other words, it's not Jesus I'm really longing for when I get to heaven. And we have to ask ourselves that question. What is going to make heaven really heaven? The streets of gold? The foundations of multicolored precious stones? The fact that we can travel the new heavens for eternity and see one beautiful thing after another? Or is the thing that's going to make heaven really heaven is that God himself is going to be there? And, and it's a question that you, I, you don't need to answer me about, but it's something to take home and meditate on. And ask yourself, Lord, if you weren't there and heaven was just as beautiful, but you weren't there, would it really bother me? And you know what? If you have to say in all honesty, I'm not sure that it would, Get on your knee and tell, knees and tell God that. Say, Lord, I don't like that. Obviously, I don't love you as much as I need to, as much as I want to. Would you, Lord, work in my heart and cause me to fall madly in love with you that heaven would not be heaven if you weren't there? But God is going to dwell with his people. In fact, it's interesting... As we look at, in the Bible, the record of God dwelling with his people. The first time we are introduced to God meeting with people 
is the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve. How God would come in the cool of the day and He would meet with Adam and Eve. He would dwell with them for the purpose of fellowship. Then later on we read in the Old Testament how God had them actually build something called the tabernacle, which also was known as the tent of what? Meeting. A place where God and man could come together for the purpose of fellowship. Later, the tabernacle was replaced by the permanent structure called the temple when they finally came into the land. And you remember how Solomon dedicated the temple. Remember how when they finally finished it and the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies and set it down and all the worship people were singing praise. The whole nation was singing praises to God. At one point, the Shekinah glory descended on the temple and filled the temple with the glory of God to the point where the priests couldn't even stand any longer. They had to, to leave because the Shekinah glory so filled that place, right? God was dwelling there with his people in the temple. Then one of the saddest scriptures I can think of is in Ezekiel chapter 10, where after many years of sin and idolatry, where God had tried to reach out to the nation through one prophet after another to try to get them to repent and to turn away from their idolatry back to him, the people had become so hardened and so entrenched in their immorality and idolatry. It says at one point in Ezekiel 10, the Shekinah glory lifts up off the Ark of the Covenant, the throne, the mercy seat, moves forward out of the Holy of Holies into the holy place, stops at the threshold as if to look back one last time and then moves across the Kidron Valley over the Mount of Olives and disappears. God's presence had left his people because of their sin. He was no longer dwelling with them. The next time we read about God dwelling with his people, John opens his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What was his title? Emmanuel, which means God with us. The word dwell there and the word became flesh and dwelt among us is a Greek word that literally means tabernacled. A tabernacle is a temporary structure, right? The tent. And so what it's saying there is that Jesus Christ, God, put on a human tent called a physical body and he pitched a tent, his flesh, coming to the earth, the incarnation. He lived among us for 33 years. It was a tent because he wasn't going to stay longer than that time. He was going to go to the cross. And of course, you remember how that on the night before his crucifixion uh, in the upper room, he talked about leaving them. He said, look, I have to go away. And where I'm going, you can't follow me, not yet. I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send you another helper, the Holy Spirit and so on. So obviously, his time with them on this earth was temporary. He said, but I'm going to go back to the Father. I'm going to pray to the Father. He'll send you the Holy Spirit. And God is going to dwell with you once again, but not in a temple made with hands. Where is God going to dwell starting from that point on? In, our, in the temple of our heart. 
and of course in the temple of his church which is made up of individuals who God lives in their hearts so God is with us in a very real very real way I mean God is definitely with us and he dwells we are the temple now of the living God he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands he dwells in the fleshly temples of our hearts and again in verse 3 John says behold the tabernacle of God is with men he will dwell with them and they shall be his people God himself will be with them and be their God three times in verse 3 it tells us that God will dwell with his people you know God wants to be with you God likes when you're with him God likes it he loves it when you take the time to spend time with him it's all about fellowship right I mean God doesn't need anything from us but what he wants is our fellowship he likes to be with us and someday he's preparing well he's preparing a city right now that we're going to live with him for all eternity well verse 4 says and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes you know Psalm 56, verse 8 says, You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Of course, this is picking up on a practice that the Jews did and probably other Middle Eastern or maybe even beyond that cultures. They would often catch their tears in little bottles. Maybe you've seen these. And they have uh, rather large lips on them so they can put them under their eyes, and when they cry, they catch their tears in these bottles. Part of it, I think, is because in desert areas where people live, water is very precious. And tears represent life, but they also represent sorrow. And they catch these tears to remind them of some of the pain that they've endured in life. Just to lighten things up a little bit, heard a story about two tears that were floating down the stream one day they bumped into each other and one said to the other who are you and the little tear said well I am a tear from a woman who lost her love who are you I'm a tear from the girl that found him <laughs> careful what you wish for anyways all right but you know <laughs> Now, you're not going to remember anything from tonight except that dumb story, right? I know, I know that's how it works. <laughs> I don't remember any of the study, but Pastor Phil gave this goofy story. I just can't forget. All right. Um, I, I just want you to notice something, though. Who's going to wipe away our tears? You know, this is not something that God wants to uh, delegate. You know, it's not like when we get to heaven... There's going to be about a million angels with passing out, you know, tissues as we enter the, 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 the pearly gates or whatever. This is something that God is going to do himself. Not angels. You know, he won't leave that responsibility to parents or pastors any longer. It's going to be something that God is going to take upon himself to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And as somebody has pointed out, you might be crying now. And sometimes in the midst of our sorrow, we don't think God cares. 
we don't think he even knows what's going on. The Bible says here, you number my wanderings and put my tears into your bottle. They're all written in your book. God records every tear we shed. Why does he do that? Because he cares about us. If every hair on our head is numbered, then why wouldn't God number our tears, which are more important than the hairs of our head? He does that, and he records it in his Bible that he does it because he wants us to know he is not like the Greeks' concept of God. The gods were apatheia, apathetic. They didn't care. The Bible says you cast all your cares upon him. He does care about you. And someday, I just imagine us reaching heaven and God being there, you know, to kind of symbolically wipe our tears. Not that we're going to enter heaven with tears, really. The idea is, though, that when, once we're raptured, from that moment on, we're never going to shed another tear. Now, let me, let me take that back, because I'm not sure about something. I'm not completely sure that there won't be any tears in the millennial kingdom, that God's people will cry. So I can't really say I know that for sure. From the time the rapture happens, we'll never. I know one thing for sure. By the time we move into the eternal state, the Bible definitely says God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There won't be another tear shed the moment we step into eternity from time. It could be that when we are serving the Lord in the millennial kingdom, we might cry not because we're. I don't think we're going to cry for ourselves. If there are any tears shed by those of us who are redeemed and have our glorified body, you know why they're going to be shed? Because there are people in the millennial kingdom that we know and love that don't want to believe in Jesus. The Bible says the child will die at 100, and the sinner being 100 years old will be cursed. So what does that mean? Some people think it could mean that God's going to give people 100 years to decide if they're going to accept Jesus or not, and if they don't, they're going to be cursed and condemned. It could be. I don't know. I know one thing. We're going to love these folks. Just like we love people right now who, for whatever reason, will not give their hearts to Christ. And we cry for them, don't we? I, I'm, I believe we will probably shed some tears for those that stubbornly refuse to accept Jesus during the millennial kingdom. Can you even imagine not wanting to accept Christ when he's on his throne visibly, ruling over a perfect environment, basically? I just know one thing. By the time we enter into the eternal state and God brings that heavenly new Jerusalem down to the earth and he opens the front door, you might say, to that, the gates to the city. As we walk in, I just imagine him there to greet every one of us with a big hug. I have a picture in my office. I had a picture. Last year when the strong winds came through, ripped the roof off the building, when the guys came in to fix the offices and things, that was the one picture somebody liked and took. God bless him. I don't care. It was a great picture, though. It was a picture of Jesus in heaven. And he had his arms around one of his saints that had made it, you know, and welcomed them into heaven. I just always loved that because you just see him just giving him a big bear hug, welcoming us home. What will it be like to live in a universe where we're never going to know another day of sorrow or pain or heartache. Can you imagine a life absolutely void of any negatives? 
and all the positives, the love, the joy, the peace, magnified, who knows, a billion times a billion times a billion. We don't know. The Bible says joy unspeakable, full of glory. That's why Paul said, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has given us a little preview by giving us the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts. And don't we have some joy? We don't have fullness of joy now. The world is such a evil and hurtful place. But we do have joy and peace. And we have love. But we'll never know those things to their fullest until we step foot into the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, where God literally dwells. And to live in an environment where you can't even describe the joy, I, I tell you. Now, maybe you've heard some people say something like this. Because they've gone through some difficult times, I've heard people say, maybe you have too, well, when I see God, he's got some explaining to do. Have you heard somebody say that? He's got some things to answer for. Really? Folks, those are either the words of the ignorant or the immature. Ignorant, what I mean by I mean unsaved. Or the extremely immature, very young in Christ. You see maturity expressed in the words of Job, who was a very wealthy man, had ten children, and in a matter of several days, everything was taken from him. His children were killed. All his possessions were stolen away. And it says, Then Job arose, tore his robe when he heard everything that had gone on, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and he cursed God. No. He fell on the ground and he worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Who, who does it belong to? My possessions and even my children. Who? They're God's. They belong to God. And if he graciously allows me to enjoy them for a time, praise him. If he decides that the time has come to take them away because the possessions maybe are hindering all that he wants to do in my growth or because precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. And so sometimes he'll take our children home not to punish us, but to bless them, but also to teach lessons that are hard. But Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. That's the heart of somebody who really knows God. And I guarantee you, folks, that no matter how rough a person has it on this earth, if they really know the Lord, when they stand before him, they're not going to be thinking about what happened on a particular Tuesday in a certain year and what God allowed and why did God do it. When they see the face of God and the glory of heaven, I guarantee you everything else. How's the song go? will all fade away in the light of his glory and grace. I think that's one of the reasons why the former things don't come to mind nor are remembered. Who wants to remember this when you got God face to face in heaven? I mean, come on, right? And verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, 
for these words are true and faithful. God said, Behold, I make all things new. Now, the Greek actually says, Behold, I am making all things new, in the sense that once God makes them new, He will continue to keep them new. In other words, from this point on, everything is going to remain young and fresh and new for eternity. One of the reasons that things wear out and grow old and die is because we're under the curse right now. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't realize that the moment they sinned, they set in motion certain natural laws. The law of entropy is the one I'm thinking of, but in primarily the second law of thermodynamics, which says that everything is going from order to disorder. Everything is going from young to old. Everything is going from integration to disintegration. You know, things are wearing out, they're decaying, and everything because of the curse is moving from wholeness to corruption. Once the curse is lifted, and we see this in Revelation 22, verse 3, in the eternal state, the curse will finally be completely lifted. It won't be completely lifted during the millennial kingdom. Because there will still be death in the millennial kingdom. It won't be anything like what we're seeing today. But death will still be around. Sin will still be around. Albeit greatly hindered by the Lord, of course. But when the eternal state comes and we move from time into eternity, God is going to lift the curse. That means that everything from that time on is going to remain eternally young and fresh and new. Just like God intended it the first week of creation when he made it. It was sin that brought death and decay and disorder and, you know, all the things that we see in the world today. But once the curse is lifted, all of that will be gone and everything will remain continually brand new. How would you like that? Don't you love that new car smell? You know, we love it so much they actually have cans of new car smell you can spray. I don't know if it, it really smells like a new car, but... There's just something about having something new. And in the eternal state, everything we have will remain continually brand new. And that includes us. And, you know, some believe, and I tend to agree with them, that in heaven, we're all going to be around 30 years of age. Now, where did you get that? Come on, is that in the Bible? Well, no, not really. I mean, that's just a guess, but I think it's an educated guess. We know that when God made Adam and Eve, he made them fully mature. They were able to have kids right away. He told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So, you know, some people think they were maybe 30-something, uh, but they were created mature. In fact, uh, people debate about the strangest things. For centuries, people have deb debated, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? <laughs> You know, what, what people occupy themselves with, I don't know. But do I think they had a belly button? Yes. Because God made them mature. If it, I believe if you were in the garden the minute after God had created it, all the trees would have been mature, of course. You didn't plant seeds and let them grow. They were all instantly mature trees. If you would have cut one of those down and looked at it, you would have seen annular rings there. Uh, that's just my opinion. But I think in the eternal state in heaven, we're going to be about 30 years of age. Now, I know in the Old Testament, a priest could not serve until he reached 30. And we are a kingdom of priests. We know that Joseph was 
30 years old when he was made ruler in Egypt. David was 30 when he finally uh, became king over the entire nation of Israel. We are going to reign with the Lord. And we also know Jesus himself entered his earthly ministry at the age of 30. So I kind of think that we're going to be around 30. And um, God is going to just keep us there. You know, I remember the 30s. They're becoming a, a dim memory. Oh, to go back, you know. But, you know, it says that, you know, I make all things new. Verse 5 tells us. Now, we know that God, by this time, will have already made us brand new. When? The rapture, right? At the rapture. When we are raptured, we are going to receive our glorified bodies. We are going to be made perfect physically. I mean, we're going to be totally made brand new physically. But... God still needs to make the rest of creation brand new, the inanimate creation. We know that the creation is still under the curse. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day.